I want to talk to you today, though, about vision. The title of my message is Vision 53. Now, I put it in Roman numerals because we're trying to be like the Super Bowl, you know? And so, uh, but that's uh, 50, 1, 2, 3 there. And I want to talk to you about this subject. It's so important. And I want you to turn in your Bible to a very familiar passage. It's in the book of Proverbs, chapter 29. Proverbs number 29. And when you get there, it's verse number 18. And when you find it, please stand. And it's just one verse, but we'll read it together. Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 18. Everybody together, why don't you read it aloud, all of us in one great chorus together. Where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Do it again. Good and strong, everybody together. Where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Thank you. You may be seated. I don't believe there is any quality that's more essential to a church than the quality of vision. The Bible even says it like this, without it, we perish. Without it, we perish. And without it, churches perish. And many churches today are languishing, and they're dying across America. And part of the problem, at least, I believe, is a lack of vision. Businesses die. Every business was started with somebody's vision. A young man or woman says, I'm going to open a shop. I'm going to start a construction company. I'm going to whatever they choose in terms of a business. And they open that business. It's a little small, struggling thing. And then they continue, and the Lord blesses them. But it started with a dream. It started with a hope of doing something that would earn them a good living would serve the people of that region. And so it started with a vision. Without a vision, nations die. And today, I think America languishes because she's lost her vision. She's lost her vision. I remember when America was really in a very apathetic state. Things were not going well at all. And a man named Ronald Reagan, nobody had much confidence in him, a former movie actor. But he began talking about America is the city on the hill that John Winthrop saw. And he painted a vision, let's become that city on the hill. And America rallied behind him, and we had some very, very wonderful and great days during the time of his leadership. So without a vision, churches die, businesses die. Nations die, and I might say people die. They may not be buried. You know, they may go on and exist for a while, but they've died. They've died inside. They've died to hope. They've died to a purpose. They've died to having any real meaning in their life. That's why, among other reasons, I think today we have an epidemic of suicide in the country is people have lost their vision, their purpose, their reason to be, if you will. Now, COVID that we've just gone through was a vision killer, if ever anything was. It distracted people 
They could not live their life, the lockdowns and all the other problems. It diverted people. It filled people with fear. Their minds, in many cases, were so full of fear that they really didn't function on a normal level at all. And what are the signs of a loss of vision? Have you ever thought about it? When people don't have a vision, number one, they're apathetic. They're indifferent. They're complacent. They've lost the main thrust for which they exist. When people lose their vision, there's a confusion. They're not sure which direction to take. When people have no vision, there is division. And you look at America today, and we're so, so, so divided. It's so sad. And oh, that we would have somebody who could cast a vision that the whole country would rally around together and we would become one nation under God instead of a group of people all uh, fighting with one another. And so when you lose vision, you lose initiative. You lose initiative. And so every business in town nearly has a help-wanted sign out. Well, that's a great indication that we've lost a vision. What is our dream for the future? What is our purpose? Oh, man, I believe America today is dying for a new vision, a revision of their vision, if you will. You know, if you read this verse here in my King James Bible, verse 18, it has a little mark by it, by the word perish. Where there is no vision, the people perish. That indicates some marginal rendering. Do you have that in your Bible? You probably do if you have a center column reference Bible. And if you'll go over there, here's the alternative rendering that the translators put there for us. Where there is no vision, the people cast off restraint. The people cast off restraint. And so we lose our restraint. We lose the things, the Constitution the Ten Commandments, the Beatitudes, the Golden Rule, the things that unite and bind the people together, we lose those, we cast those off. And what's one of the major things happening in our country? A a tidal wave of crime and lawlessness today in America. Why? Well, we need to regain our vision. Why do we exist? And where do we want to go as a people? Let me give you a definition of vision. I've preached on it so many times through the years. I assume you already know it, but I'll give it to you again. Vision is the ability to see what does not yet exist. The young man or woman dreams of opening a business. The coach gathers his team and dreams of winning a championship. The pastor plants a church, and he dreams of it being a great congregation one day. In every realm of life, It always starts with vision. It's the dream to imagine that which is not yet, but which you want it to be. And it's a mental picture of a better future. It never has anything to do with the past. Vision is a better future. We don't look back unless we want to go that way. Vision is about the future. Vision means possibility thinking. What if we did this? Maybe this would happen, and we would make great progress in our life, in our business, in our nation, in our church. Vision, the 
possibilities that we have before us, the opportunities, the open doors that we have before us. So why is vision so important today that I would preach on it on this No Excuses Day? Why is vision so important to you and to me and to me as a pastor and to you as an individual but also as a corporate body of people who are gathered here today? Why is it so important? Well, number one, vision motivates people. You can't motivate people don't have a vision, I don't believe. They've got to see it. They've got to dream about it. They've got to want it. Or how are you going to get them to move forward? Number two, vision guides us. Somebody said, when you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. But when you know where you're going and you have that vision, that dream, then there's, that lays out a roadmap for you, and it guides you. And vision is important to us, number three, because it unites us. I've already talked about the country so divided, but you know what? It's true in churches as well. Let me tell you something. A church that has a vision will never divide. It'll never divide. Every time somebody comes to have you heard about the so-and-so church? They're having a big fight, and they're splitting, and people are leaving the church. You know what's wrong? It begins with they didn't buy into the vision, or there is no vision. The vision has not been articulated or whatever the cause. But vision unites a people, and people that have this common dream, they come together, and they accomplish great and mighty things. And then vision does something else. It sustains us. When people are really, really, really committed to a vision, the vision causes them to be steady in the storm. Now, I don't want to be a doomsdayer, but I'm going to tell you, I see some big storms on the horizon in America. And I see big storms on the horizons for those of us who are going to serve the Lord. Because today, we live in a culture that has positioned itself against Christianity. And because of that, I tell you, I sincerely believe some storms are on the horizon. And how will we weather the storms? How will we endure unless we have a common vision, a common dream of doing something that is a great cause, and we all put our hearts in it together? Now, my point number one today, if you're taking notes, that was the introduction. That's the porch on the house. Let's build the house now, okay? Number one, in the Old Testament, God spoke to His prophets through visions and dreams. In the Old Testament, God specifically spoke to the prophets through visions and dreams. And I want you to turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel chapter number 9. 1 Samuel chapter number 9. And we're going to read verse chapter 9. We're going to read verse 9 and uh, a couple more of them here. Now, Saul, his whole... uh, herd of donkeys has run off. This is before he's king. They belong to his father, and his father sent him to find the whole herd of donkeys that had escaped. And he's looking everywhere, and he can't find them. And he comes to the town where the prophet lives, the prophet Samuel. And he says to the men who are with him, let's go up and talk to the man of God, and he'll help us find those donkeys. He'll help us locate them. And so in verse 9, parenthesis, before time in Israel, 
When a man went to inquire of God, thus he would say, come and let us go up to the seer, S-E-E-R. You see the word see there. For he that is now called a prophet back in those times was called a seer, capital S-E-E-R. One, a seer was one who sees, a person who has the ability to see. But he's not talking about somebody who can see just sitting on the porch and looking across the yard. It's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about physical vision. He's talking about one who can see a better future, who can dream, a person who has a vision of what would be better. And so you go down to verse 11. They went up to the hill, to the city, and they found young maidens who were going out to draw water. And so Saul said to them, is the seer, the prophet, the man of God here? And they said, he is. And he proceeds a little further, verse 18, and he meets Samuel, who is the prophet, the man of God. And he says, tell me, I pray you, where is the seer's house? See, he doesn't recognize that Samuel is indeed the seer. And Samuel answered Saul, and he said, I am the seer. Now, I'm emphasizing that word seer. The prophet of God, the man of God is one who can see, according to this passage of Scripture there in the Old Testament. Now, these men didn't proclaim their own ideas. They didn't come and stand before the people and say, I've got a great vision, a great plan that I've come up with. No, they spoke on behalf of God. Everything that they said was because God had revealed His plan to them, and then they would come and reveal it to the people. They would speak to the king, or they would speak to the people, individual, whatever it may be. But they were always speaking the words of God. In this case, sometimes it was a better future. But with those Old Testament prophets, sometimes God gave them a very heavy task. They weren't speaking about a good future. Sometimes the plan was, you go and tell the people about judgment that's coming. And the vision was a negative vision, a vision of judgment. Now, go with me in your Bible to a second place. Go over to the book of Habakkuk, chapter number 2. Habakkuk in the Old Testament. And Habakkuk is one of those seers. He is a man of God, a prophet. And Habakkuk has been called of God to deliver a message to the nation of Israel. And so in chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, I will stand upon my watch, and I will set me upon the watchtower on the wall. He climbed up on the wall, and he sat there, and I will watch to see what God will say to me and what I will answer when I am reproved of him. And the Lord answered me, and he said, I want you to write the vision, and I want you to make it plain. I want you to write the vision, and I want you to make it very, very simple so everybody that comes by, even the people who run along the wall, I want you to put it up on a big plaque on the wall of the city, and if somebody comes by, they cannot miss it. Write out the vision that I'm going to give you and put it on the wall, make it plain so everybody can see it, communicate it. Sometimes the Lord would speak to these men. This is really interesting to me. You read your Old Testament, God speaks to these prophets, these seers. 
And he tells them to do something that really is very, very strange sometimes, to do something to demonstrate or to illustrate, to be the illustration themselves. So you read the book of Jeremiah. God told Jeremiah, Jeremiah, I want you to get a girdle. Now, that would be like a a garment you put around your middle. It's not what you ladies wear, but a garment. I want you to go get a a girdle, and I want to put it around. I want you to wear it for a while. Then I want you to take it over so-and-so. I want you to bury it in the ground and leave it there for a long period of time. Then I want you to go back and get it, and I want you to tell the people that what that illustrates is the dirtiness of that old girdle represents their defilement before me. They're living such ungodly lives. And so he illustrated the Lord's, the vision that he proclaimed. And then Hosea, you know what God said to him? I want you to go and marry a prostitute. Man, what an assignment. Go marry a prostitute. Lord, why do you want me to marry a prostitute? Because my people have prostituted themselves. They have married false gods. They're worshiping. And your marrying that prostitute illustrates the great sin of the nation. All kinds of those illustrations make the Old Testament really an interesting book. He said to Ezekiel, I want you to make some bread. And then I want you to mix it with dung. And you take it and show it to the people, offer it to the people. They're going to say, ah. Well, he said, that's what my people have done. They've taken my work and my ordinances, and they've mixed it with filth. And I want you to illustrate it to them, offer them the bread that's mixed with dung. And he's portraying an image if you will, to the people. A vision, not a very good one in that case. God told him one day, shave your head, then collect the hair, and then burn it. All these, to us, they're crazy illustrations, but every one of them, they were an object lesson, we would call it if we were speaking to a group of children. It was the way to demonstrate a truth that God was trying to communicate to the people. So in the Old Testament, the prophets spoke, but they spoke through these visions and dreams that God put in their mind. They did not say what they wanted to say. They said what God had told them. The vision didn't come from their head and their heart. It came from the mouth of God himself. Now we come to the New Testament. And today, what is our source of vision? Well, I propose to you it's the Word of God. And I don't think there's anything less understood than the statement that's on the screen right there. Our source of vision is the Word of God that we have. We now have a lot more of the Word of God than the prophets had. We've got the completed canon of Scripture, we call it. But you know what? In our society, vision has been a big thing. Businesses put on seminars, require their employees to go, and they talk about vision over and over and over, don't they? And you have uh, books being written about vision. And to be very honest and a little bit confessional, I got caught up in reading all that stuff and going to those seminars at one time in my ministry. And you know what you find yourself doing if you do that? 
If you go to the world, you end up copying somebody else's vision. That's what it'll be. Your vision will be copied from somebody. And so you read the latest book, the latest polling data, you attend the latest seminar, and you end up being trendy. You end up being faddish. You're chasing whatever the latest ideas are. And I know preachers who have just gone clear off the deep end, lost their ministry doing that. And then there's another thing. Sometimes people get their vision from need that they see, from human need. And so it's a need-driven vision. First one is they copy somebody else. Number two, it's a need-driven vision. Now, let me tell you something. I'm going to lay out for you as clearly as I know how in just a few minutes the vision that God has given to this church, in my opinion, He's given to me from His Word. And I think a lot of churches really are getting off the tracks today because the church does not exist to meet every need in this community. And a lot of people think it does. And so I have people call me on the phone. Or I have people come by and see me. Preacher, you've got to help us out. We're going to do this. And it's a good cause. It's not a bad thing. But, you know, the church was not called of God to meet every need in the community. People, first of all, have their own responsibilities they're supposed to carry. They're supposed to carry their own burden when they can, aren't they? And God gives them a family that's supposed to stick together and help them when they're going through storms. And uh, it's not the church's responsibility to solve every problem in the community of Florence, South Carolina. I can tell you that. We can't do it. And yet today we have what we call the woke church, quote, the woke church. We have woke corporations. We have woke governments. We have woke churches today, of all things. And the woke church is what we used to call the social justice church. And it's the most dangerous thing I can think about happening in evangelical Christian church, uh, circles because they're really redefining Christianity. They're redefining the faith on a very gradual basis, and it's, and it's very, very easy to be deluded by it. Jesus Christ didn't ever come to improve everything in the community. He came to seek and to save the lost. He said that clearly over and over and over. And that must be our, our, our uh, vision. 2 Corinthians 5 and 17 is the best solution to community problems. You know what it is? If any man be in Christ, he will become a new creature, and the old things will pass away, the liquor and the adultery and the immorality and the cheating and the lying. That's the old things that pass away. When a man gets Jesus Christ into his life and he begins to grow in grace, that man is going to be a new creature in Christ. That will solve his problems. That'll solve his problems every time. And then there's a third category where people look for vision. They look to the leader for it. And so the leader is supposed to generate a vision. He's supposed to get up and say, now, folks, I have a vision for the church. And it's okay if he got it from God's Word. But if he's just kind of generating something out of his own 
creativity. It might be good, and it might not be so good. Do you know what I'm trying to do in this message? I'm trying to get you to see that the source of vision for the Florence Baptist Temple going forward, coming out of the most vision-killing time in history, COVID, I want you to see that God has a plan for His church. There is a vision that we have, and it comes from the Word of God. Don't look to Bill Monroe for it. I'm just trying to communicate it to you. Don't go to a seminar to find it. Don't check the polling data. Don't look at the needs around town. Go to the Word of God, and He'll tell you what the Florence Baptist Temple is supposed to be doing. Second Peter in your Bible, please. Second Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. To me, this is one of the most fascinating passages that you could possibly want in Scripture. And oh, does it lock us down to, to the truth of God here. But let's go back to verse 13. Peter is speaking, writing, of course, under the auspices, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 13, he says, Yea, I think it meet, or I think it appropriate as long as I'm in this tabernacle, which is the body, as long as I'm living, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has shown me, and moreover, I'm going to endeavor that you may be able, after my death, to have the things, have these things always in remembrance. Now, I hope this is not prophetic. I hope that I'm not saying, now, after I die right away, you know, I, I'm, so I'm not, don't go there. We don't want to interpret it that way, do we? After my decease, I want you to remember this, though. We have not followed cunningly devised fables. We haven't listened to the noise around us. When we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but I was an eyewitness of his majesty. What is he referring to? Now, stop. Look up here. Quit reading your Bible, man. I want you to hear me. When he says, I was an eyewitness of his majesty, he's referring to the day that Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they saw with their human eyes, the only three people on earth that saw it, they saw the Lord glorified. They saw his body transformed, changed into a different dimension. And they saw the Lord Jesus Christ. They were eyewitnesses to it. They saw the glory of God firsthand that day. That's what he's referring to when he says, I was an eyewitness of his majesty. Verse 17, he received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came a voice to him from the glory, and he repeats the words they heard, where the voice on the mountain of transfiguration, if you remember the story, the voice said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He said, we were eyewitnesses of the glory of God, and I heard with my own ears the voice of God himself saying, this is my beloved son. And this voice came from heaven, and we heard it, 
we were, when we were with him in the holy mount. But he goes on. Here it is, verse 19. Here's where I want to land. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you would do well to listen, to take heed, as unto a light that shines in a dark place. Here's what he's saying. I was there. I saw Jesus on the mountain. I heard the voice of God. But verse 19, we have something better than being an eyewitness to the glory of God and hearing a voice from heaven because we have a more sure word of prophecy. That's a reference to the Bible that your Bible is more reliable than an eyewitness account that somebody could bring to you. Your Bible is more reliable than any eyewitness testimony that anybody could offer. Did you get that? One more time. Your Bible is more reliable than eyewitness testimony that a human being could offer to you. So why would a preacher stand up and tell people, this is my vision? It seems to me like we go to the Word of God and find God's vision for our church. And my role is to preach the Word of God and show you His vision for our church from His Word and bring you face to face with God through His Word. And my prayer today and, and my, my aim, my goal in this message is to bring you face to face with God through His Word so that you absolutely know in your knower, you know in your heart that what you heard was God's truth. My role is not to satisfy the goals of the people I lead it, but it's to lead the people to carry out God's revealed plan for you. And I want to remind you something, that when you come here and hear the Word of God, or if you don't intend to ever do anything about it, you might ought to not come anymore. Do you know why? The greatest evidence of salvation is a willingness to obey the Word of God. The greatest evidence that you are truly a saved person is that you, you really want to obey the Word of God. And so you don't look around at the culture to determine your values, your morals, your beliefs. You go to God's Word, and then you not only go there, but you obey it. You are willing to obey. You may not do it perfectly. Now, I'll prove that to you with one verse. The Lord Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And what does it say? My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. God's truly born-again people, they obey God's Word once they know what it is. And so today... When you begin to, and, and by the way, let me tell you, when you really begin to obey God, you'll begin to see God work in your life. You're, you won't be apathetic when you begin to see God's will and plan and vision for you. 
It'll be real exciting. All kinds of things will come up that you never thought about. It's exciting when you begin to obey God and follow His vision for you. Now, if our vision then comes from God's Word, three things I want to tell you. One, it'll be unchanging. If a new pastor comes and takes this church, the vision won't change. Some of the plans, some of the strategies might, but the vision will never change if it came from God's Word. And number two, the vision is universal. The vision is for all ages of people. We don't have one philosophy for youth and one for adults. We don't have one vision for the children and another vision for the older people. If it came from God, it, takes, it covers all ages. It covers all classes, the rich and the poor. It covers all places. There's our missionary back there, Mark, in Manila. Well, you know what? The vision of God for His churches is the same in the Philippines as it is in Florence. He doesn't have a different vision for every church. He may have a different plan for every church, but the vision is universal. It's all groups of people, all cultures, and it's enduring. And when the hardships come and the storms of life, if we have really bought into the vision, it keeps us enduring. It keeps us on the track. You younger people won't remember this. I'm showing my age now. How many of y'all remember Paul Harvey? Paul Harvey was a radio commentator. He used to be on the radio every day. And boy, he was, he was a Christian too, by the way. And he was just a great, great man. And Paul Harvey had this saying he would often say. He said, the main thing is that the main thing remain the main thing. Don't you like that? The main thing is that you never forget that the main thing must remain the main thing. And Paul Harvey, I can still hear him saying that after all these years. Now listen to me. The main thing will keep you unchanging, and it's universal. It'll apply in every culture and time, and it's enduring. It'll see you through the tough times. And so let me now take the just a few minutes and share with you a Bible-centered vision for our church. A Bible-centered vision 53. We're at 53 as we're starting our 53rd year in about two or three months here. We're finishing up the 52nd year. And for those of you who are not used to being with us, I know you look at me and wonder how in the world I could have been here all that time. What you don't know is I started this church when I was six years old. Okay? So, um, now you old folks, you didn't even laugh at that. That's, that's joke number 42, isn't it? But, all right. But what, is it, what does God want us to do? You know, vision dies so quickly. You have to repeat it often. Before I tell you the vision, let me tell you one other thing. <clears throat> the story of Nehemiah teaches us so much about leadership. And you know what Nehemiah did? He went there to Jerusalem. It was in disarray. The walls were down. The city had been burned up and sacked. And Nehemiah comes to town, and he takes a survey trip a couple, three nights in a row, riding his, his horse around the city. And then Nehemiah goes before all the people, and he announces a vision. He tells them what of a better future that they can have if they will rebuild the wall. 
And the people come together in great unity. And, man, they pour their souls into it. And you know what? They build the wall in 52 days. Unheard of. They thought it would take years. 52 days they build the wall. Because it's amazing what people can do when they put their mind to it. Well, they built the wall. But if you'll read the account in Matthew or in, in Nehemiah, and I won't turn you there. But it says, and the wall was half finished. And when it was half finished, which I would guess would be in about 26 days, wouldn't you? If it was 52 for do the whole thing, 50, then 26 days or something like that would be about halfway. And Nehemiah, when the wall was half finished, what did he do? He stood up and he repeated the vision to him. He told him the same thing he told him on day one. Do you know why? Because we drift. And the vision fades. And the vision leaks. And how many times have I preached on vision in these 52 years? I must have preached on it 100 times. Some of y'all know what I'm going to say next. But you know what? I've got to keep saying it. I've got to pull you back and remind you. Now, did COVID affect this church? Let me ask you this. Did it affect you? Yes. Affected every one of us, didn't it? Did it, did it kind of get, distract us from a lot of things that we were thinking about, make us change a lot of plans? And so now I'm trying to restate, recast the vision. Have we lost vision? I'm afraid some of us have. I'm afraid that there's some folks that are indifferent and apathetic. I'm afraid that there's some folks that are confused about what the real purpose of this whole thing is. And so today, I want to I take two of the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ real quickly. I'm not going to be long. Two teachings of Jesus Christ that really summarize the whole ministry of Jesus Christ. You take all of his teaching, you can summarize it with two things that he did. Number one is the great commandment. The great commandment. What is the great commandment? That you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. You know what that is? That's worship. That's worship. That's what we, I preached about both times last Sunday. To worship God is to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And that just summarizes to love Him with all of your being. Do you do that? I hope you're doing that. The second thing in the great commandment, you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, but number two, you love your neighbors yourself. And last fall, do you remember I preached an entire series of messages on love one another, about seven or eight messages? And I preached them over and over. What is love? Love is serving other people. Love is an action and not a feeling. Love is doing our duty when we know what it is to other people to treat them like we want to be treated. And it's, love is demonstrated by a great sense of fellowship. And so when people love each other, there's a bond that occurs, and people become close to other people. They minister to each other. They don't have to have an assignment from the church office. They see a need, and they want to fill it. 
that's just carrying out the great commandment. Love God, love other people. That's our vision. Let me give you a third thing, and it comes from the Great Commission. So we have the Great Commandment, we have the Great Commission. And what's the Great Commission? Well, the Great Commission is, number one, to go into all the world and take the gospel to every creature so as to witness. It begins with another vision, to lift up your eyes, vision, and look on the field, the world, and see the harvest, all the people that so need the Lord Jesus Christ that are so lost, to see the opportunity, the harvest is white, but the laborers are few. There's not enough people who will witness. The statistics say uh, uh, over 90% of of Christians never even attempt to witness to another person. Are you witnessing? That's our vision. And then we go and we proclaim the gospel to every single creature. And that involves a whole number of things, trying to win souls to Christ, soul winning, witnessing, sharing what the Lord has done for you in your life, inviting people to come to church. And I've got a little plan out here, the honor roll of evangelism, but I'm not going to have time to tell you about it now. But I want you to put your name on the honor roll. And it involves giving out literature where people can read the gospel, a book, and think about the gospel. This week, I was reminded by one of our members. You can look this up on the internet, and it's worth watching. I'll tell you, it takes about 10 minutes. Do you know the guy, Penn Gillette on Penn and Teller, the magician? He's an atheist, hardcore. He speaks on behalf of atheists. He got through with his show in Las Vegas, and you can look it up and watch it. I wish you would. It will touch you. He got through with the show one night, and there was a man standing there. And the man waited patiently until he had signed autographs and so on. And then he came over, and Gillette said, this man was, had the kindest spirit I've ever seen in a person. And he must have repeated on this video four or five times. He looked me straight in the eye. He looked me straight in the eye. He looked me straight in the eye. And he said, I have a Bible I want to give you. And it was a little Gideon New Testament, the Psalms. And he handed it to me. Penn Gillette, a hardened atheist, is sitting there looking at the camera. When you watch it, you'll see He's on the verge of tears. There was something in that man's demeanor that was so kind. He said, I I was so touched. I've never been touched like that. He probably knew I was an atheist, and yet he treated me that way anyhow. And then he said these words. Listen to them. I don't respect people who claim to be Christians and don't proselytize. Now, by proselytize, he means trying to win you to Christ. I don't respect people who claim to be Christians, and they won't proselytize. How much do you have to hate a person if you believe there's a heaven and a hell, and you won't speak to other people about it? 
How much do you have to hate a person? If you believe honestly in your heart that there is a heaven and a hell and you won't tell another person about it, Pendulet. So the Great Commission, the Great Commandment, worship God, love others, witness, and lastly, make disciples. And teach people to observe and obey everything that Jesus taught us. Lead our converts to baptism, church membership, and then teach them to live like Christians, to have the fruit of the Spirit in their life, to be like that man that witnessed to Penn that the kindness and love and grace of God just really flows over to us. My vision for our church is to train a whole army of believers, mobilized, trained, and committed to Jesus Christ. I hope you will join me as we go forward in year 53. I need you. I can't do it without you. And let's do it. God can have the greatest days of the Florence Baptist Temple. Even at 52, the greatest days can be in the future. Amen? Stand to your feet with me, if you will, please.